and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. This is episode 67. It's a special episode because we are together at a retreat at, in the United Arab Emirates. And I'm here with Fred Roder, Fabio Fernandez, Simon Lee and Lucas Sagania. Um, for the special episode, I think because we have somebody who's new to the CCC team, maybe Simon, if you want to just introduce yourself to the audience, who are you and what do you do? Okay. Um, I'm Simon Lee. I am the Taiwan Policy Fellow of the CCC. Basically, I used to um, fight for the freedom and consumer choice in Hong Kong, but then um, now Hong Kong is uh, quite hard for us to operate, so I choose to fight the next frontier, which is Taiwan, which um, I'm looking forward to expand the choice for Taiwanese consumers. Right, and, and so what would you identify as sort of the, the top priorities in your work when it comes to Taiwan, which are sort of the pressing issues there? Taiwan is very interesting in a way that um, it has democracy and it has a lot of freedom. People do enjoy the freedom in a way that um, no one else in the Chinese-speaking world have, but Having said that, there are a few things maybe we can make Taiwan even better. Say, um, Taiwan still has a lot of protectionist regulations. There are a lot of regulations, even my Taiwan friends, they know it has to be reformed, but they just don't have the, the idea that how they can change the, the regulatory regimes to make it more in line with the um, best practice all over the world. So uh, I hope that I can be at the bridge to help them to, to um, have a discussion on the issues. Absolutely. And I think the additional language skills will also enrich the, the CCC team uh, in our outreach. Um, one of the topics that I wanted to discuss today as, a, as a, in a roundtable, I think it's very newsworthy, and I think we've addressed it a, a bit already on the podcast, is energy dependence. As the war in Ukraine uh, continues, uh, Europe has to reshift its focus. So uh, I think, Fred, it makes sense to turn to you. Uh, you probably uh, should get an even bigger sign made with an I told you so. I think the, th the things that you've been saying about Nord Stream 2 um, maybe remind sort of like your, your struggle there and, and, and how quickly you, like how do you analyze this quick shift that, that Germany did on energy policy and how important it is, according to you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, energy ind independence is of course hard to achieve for economies that uh, don't have many natural resources. And uh, Germany, my home country, is a country that is not blessed with all, large oil or gas reserves. And um, unfortunately, the um, political elites in Germany for the last two decades have been mainly pushing for oil and gas projects, especially gas projects uh, with Russia. Uh, this was initially Nord Stream 1, and then also they uh, now stopped or halted uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline through the Baltic Sea, uh, while also a lot of gas comes through Ukraine, and it came th also through pipelines through Poland. And uh, this was always bizarre to see that basically all, almost all eggs were put in one basket with Russia, and it was clear for decades that uh, Russia is not a reliable partner and um, the, the massive aggressions and the war and invasion of Ukraine has shown this again. 
And uh, now it's really hard for, for Germany, but also other countries such as Bulgaria or uh, Austria to just quickly pivot because these pipelines have been built and this is like where most of the gas comes from. So um, I think there's like a multifactorial way to, um, to approach this now. Uh, on the one hand, obviously uh, building LNG terminals and Germany, so far, I believe, doesn't have a single one. Whereas if you look at a European map, Spain has many. The Netherlands right. has terminals. Spain is about 25% of the infrastructure needed for LNG in Europe. Yes, yes. So that's, that's very impressive. And I believe there are also larger projects in Portugal. So uh, on the one hand, we can get gas from the United States and Canada. Um, that also requires more work on the North American side because the current administrations in Washington and Ottawa have also... Uh, been halting, reducing, and stopping larger pipeline projects and LNG terminal projects, which we also need for export. Uh, so on the North American side, I think there should also be a reshuffle of policies. So more exploration should happen in liberal democracies and more export than can happen. Um, but I think also Germany still needs to understand that phasing out nuclear power as a country that doesn't have natural resources is a very bad strategy because you can achieve, at least on the energy side, maybe not on the heating side, but on the energy side, it's totally unnecessary to use natural grass, gas to uh, generate electricity in Germany if you can have nuclear power plants. And Germany, I think, has still three power plants left, which are supposed to be switched up by the end of the year. Right. And the Ministry of Energy and Economics, unfortunately, still um, is not eager to uh, extend the running times and reactivate deactivated uh, nuclear power plants, whereas, for instance, in Belgium, I think the exit from nuclear power has now been delayed by 10 years. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there, there's a lot happening there. And I think I discussed this also with Rainer Klute in last week's episode, where, where, where we were able to identify sort of a distinction between uh, the environmentalist reaction to the, to the crisis in countries like Belgium and the Netherlands and, and so on, uh, the, the, the phase out being stopped, uh, uh, prolonged at least uh, for the moment, while Germany environmentalists seem to at least appear to double down, which is, a, which is bad news. By the way, also for all the panelists, you can chime in at any moment. Uh, you don't need to look to me uh, if, if you want to react. I think, Luca Zagania, uh, your, your home country, Georgia, is probably also not in a favorable position when it comes to energy uh, independence. Um, your view, how, is it, how, is this, uh, how is the situation in Georgia for, for those listeners who might not necessarily know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Georgia is no stranger to the inherent dangers of uh, being uh, uh, energy dependent. Uh, I mean, the first event that comes to mind was... Uh, uh, Mosdok Tbilisi pipeline incident in 2006, which was more of a punishment from the Russian side of the Georgian, uh, who was at the time going more like turn, turning towards the the West, providing uh, well undertaking uh, reforms, and you know openly going up against very aggressive Russian politics. And yeah, after the negotiations on the Russian side to try and attempt to bully the Georgian government at the time, if his submission failed, suddenly the pipeline goes down uh, with most ludicrous. Uh, reasoning behind it, ranging from terrorist attack to potential meteor strike. Uh, so, yeah, I remember that uh, winter 2006, very cold one, particularly cold one, gas prices through the roof. Uh, but that showed us the inherent danger of what a country might experience if you're too dependent on uh, one source of, uh, uh, on, on one energy supply only. Uh, and that shaped our policy coming from, moving forward, we shifted, our, Georgia shifted its uh, energy Imports primarily to Azerbaijan, which is in a lot, a lot friendlier position. 
but what I, what I believe uh, happened then, uh, we see today as well with the Ukrainian crisis coming up and how it's shaping current European response to the Russian aggression all on, on its own. I mean, of course, Georgia uh, is still not in a favorable position, although we are, we are moving towards greater uh, energy independence in the form of uh, hydropower. Um, and more renewables in, in, in the shape of wind and solar, and those are certainly developing fields. And uh, but yeah, I believe the biggest push uh, to the fruits of the uh, of the uh, renewable undertaking uh, stem from that 2006 uh, incident. Right. Uh, it's always when a necessity is created, unfortunately, that the, that the reaction comes a bit quicker. Uh, Fabio, I think we've discussed this already a bit on the on, on the podcast together. Uh, some of the European reactions have been. Uh, to you know, give out specific uh, subsidies to individual households that have a, have a need. I think France reacted specifically already when the supply chain problems were and to, towards uh, what hopefully is now the end of the pandemic. Uh, uh, but but you live in Italy. Sort of what is what has been the conversation in Italy? I know that Luca Bertoletti was on the podcast as well to talk about it briefly. Uh, we seem to be going back to domestic supply of natural gas, even coal plants being reopened. Uh, what's the conversation there? Yeah, exactly. We talked here in the pet, on the podcast about that uh, many times. And I think uh, Italy is one of the first countries now with the crisis that are moving back to coal. And they completely turned, I think, two plants already to produce the energy that they need uh, that is will not be provided by uh, external factors. So uh, the most important thing here is I agree with Fred when he's talking about the uh, we need to be more independent. And we talked about that in, on the podcast as well. Uh, and the most important thing here is um, when we talk about dependency is that it's very hard for, for Europe to break the dependence that it has today. So because to, to be independent means investment and it needs time. So what we're trying to do right now is to try to postpone some of the effects of the shortcomings of this war, which basically is inflation and high cost. And uh, it doesn't look promising in the next year or two. But uh, investments will need to be made in, in order to uh, do the complete shift uh, to other sources, renewables, but to break the dependence that we have in those countries. Mm. Maybe, maybe as a roundtable, I, I would be curious, actually, how do you either heat or air condition? Do you know where your energy comes from? Uh, maybe, Fred, you, uh, you live here in the United Arab Emirates. Yeah, it's uh, predominantly uh, gas turbines and nuclear power. Um, as, a, as an oil-rich country, the UAE still started uh, operating a nu nuclear power plant a year ago um, because it's a growing economy and they don't just want to set on like one source of energy. And then this is actually also a favorable uh, region for solar because the sun is shining almost every day a year. So that makes sense to use solar here. So it's, it's mm. these, probably mainly these three sources. Right. Fabio already elaborated on it. I think Italy now also looking to natural, natural gas from uh, Algeria as well. Um, uh, Simon, uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you heat the place? Uh, you, you're in Virginia. How do you heat the place in winter? Do you know where it's from? And interestingly, I just recently realized that another nuclear plant near my home is like just 20 minutes away and we never know that and i think a lot of people they do have a a misconception about nuclear and uh, especially after fukushima and uh, in the area i'm working in taiwan they had referendums after referendums about like phrasing out nuclear they had a few nuclear plants there it made up about 
nine to ten percent of the total energy consumption over there. But now is they they have proposal to phase out nuclear. But then um, last year there was another referendum. Actually, on the other on the other side of the spectrum, they someone proposed they might want to resume um, the nuclear energy program. The referendum was defeated by a very close margin. So we, we can see that people who are looking for a more secure source of um, power supply, but um, there are certain misconceptions needs to be addressed, especially like when, when people look at Fukushima, that was like a very old technology. It was not well maintained and this and that. But um, a lot of technical issues can be addressed, I think. I, I long for the days when I was living in France and uh, I was uh, doing electric heating uh, with the French nuclear power. It was very cheap. It was a very low amount of money that I was uh, uh, spending on, on, on heating there. Uh, Luca, for you, uh, is it actually cheap in Georgia uh, to get gas in the winter? Uh, comparably, yes. I mean, general utility bills tend to be reasonably low in Georgia. Uh, I suppose Russia, uh, Azerbaijani gas does make it a bit more affordable overall. However, I do know that we have been increasing the import of Russian gas as of recent last couple of years. Because it's cheaper? Uh, no. The question is, well, it's not too clear why we keep doing that. And the gas providing companies have been reluctant to say the exact numbers, although the estimates are in about 30% increase of the uh, imports from Russia compared to the last couple of years. I mean, while it remains a minor amount of imports, the trend does make the eyebrows rise in Georgia, especially with some of the memories still lingering on, as well as the general political climate. Uh, but well, as of now, gas remains to be the main uh, heating, like well, main method of heating the houses for us. Let's switch gears. Another topic uh, of, a, of something that consumes a lot of energy and it has been criticized as such as uh, uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, cryptocurrencies being uh, under fire in the European Union as well for its energy uh, uh, consumption, for transactions. Uh, Fred, do you have any, any thoughts on, on, on some of the recent legislation? I talked to Alexander Kokotovich already on the podcast about some of the reasons that this legislation was considered. It was defeated in the European Parliament, but maybe we'll see more of that in the future. Um, is the environmental aspect that they're taking just an excuse because they don't want cryptocurrencies in the first place? First of all, I'm very happy to see that this proposal got defeated, even though it was at a narrow margin. Um, I would think that some people who bring up the environmental impact of cryptocurrencies just have no idea what cryptocurrencies and blockchain-based block technologies are. Uh, so it's just like technophobe people fighting against something they don't understand. Um, if you look at the global footprint of what crypto consumes electricity, it's actually also not so bad. And if someone has a problem with this, we can just build a couple of more nuclear power plants and it's being taken care of. Uh, mm. So in general, humanity is not incapable of producing more, more energy at a cheaper price. We just have too many ideological barriers to overcome to understand how we get cheap and clean mm. Uh, energy. So, um, yes, I mean, maybe maybe just adding to that, cryptocurrencies are also not being used in the entire uh, area of, like, do they make sanctions against Russia ineffective? Right. And this is actually, people who bring that up have no idea how crypto works. I mean, try to be a billionaire or a government that wants to move billions dollar worth of Bitcoin. I mean, you need to find someone who exchanges that. 
yeah, and it's extremely volatile and finding someone who takes $2 billion from you and gives you Bitcoin for $2 billion, that that is not really possible. An exchange would even stop it. So you have to do it off exchange and it's basically impossible off exchange. So even trying to have $500,000 in cash and getting Bitcoin for it is extremely hard. And people who criticize this have just no idea, no experience themselves. They basically show that they are not users themselves. On the on, on that question of the of the energy use, and, and I think it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, there's, there's, there's some distractions happening there on the, on the actual use of crypto. There, um, uh, Simon, can you give us? I know you've you've written about this as well. Can you give us for our listeners who might not necessarily be completely. Uh, on this topic, the least technical uh, uh, explanation as to what explains the actual electricity use and energy use and, and maybe dispel some of the myths? Power plants does not work by, like, if you demand so much energy, then they produce. Power plants basically produce, like, a constant output, more or less. And especially if you are on renewable, you cannot control the output. So. Most of the time, all power plants, they do have an excess supply of uh, electricity, so to feed the network. But these excess supply of electricity are actually not being used. So if you have a power system, and a power grid, that has a lot of excess supply. Um, from where I used to live in Hong Kong, the excess supply was like 100% more than that. So in that case, all these fuels that you burn were actually wasted. So in a number of places, um, some power plants, they sell these excess capacity to crypto mines. And the way they do it is through dynamic pricing. So whenever the electricity demand is low, the power plants sell more to the mines so they can work a little bit more. And then when the demand is high, the electricity price like goes up, and these uh, crypto mines, they will kind of shut down. So it becomes a buffer to all these excess capacity. And the benefit, lastly, the benefit is these money going to the power plants actually subsidize consumers. And in the long term, it supports renewable and other cleaner source of energies. That requires more capital investments. Maybe as a, as a short addition, do we see any evolution as to how much energy certain cryptocurrencies and, and exchanges uh, um, use? Is there is there is there an improvement, an efficiency improvement? Another another technology improvement that um, a lot of people mention is instead of using the proof of work, they use the proof of stake. But it really is another way you can see how technologies help to uh, solve the problem with less resources. And um, down the road, uh, cryptocurrency by itself is an evolving technology. And we, we have seen it put in place for only 13 years or so. And um, it is still a very new thing. And so I, I think we should allow the space for cryptocurrency to improve. Yes, people do have a concern about energy efficiency, but you know what? It is exactly because blockchain is so transparent. You see all the transaction costs going on. If you look at the traditional financial system, it takes up a lot of resources as well. And there's no way for us to account for how much energy being put into running a conventional money system. It right. could be more. 
and it could be less efficient. But on blockchain, it is so transparent that it becomes a crime. Yeah, national uh, uh, central banks are, are also not without costs, exactly. So uh, you mentioned some of the evolution and the uses. Uh, I know, Fabio, you are a, a crypto uh, user. Can you maybe uh, uh, for the listeners who are, who, are, who are not using any 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 blockchain based or crypto uh, uh, services at all? Can you just explain what, what you do? What, what sort of what is your daily interaction with uh, cryptocurrencies? I think it depends much in the uh What, what is the customer is looking for? So if you think about consumers, I think there are two main uh, consumers that use Bitcoin or any type of cryptocurrency. You have the ones that are investors and the ones that want to do transactions on a daily basis. So when you think about transactions, uh, you want, of course, something that is cheap, that you don't have to pay uh, high fees, high, high gas fees or anything like that because you want the the speed of the transaction to go. And and when you're talking about investors, is people that want to hold to their Uh, active, so they want to hold to their bitcoins, to their Ethereum, or and so forth, and just on the long run make money on those things. I know that are also investors in like shit coins and stuff like that. They want to make money very fast. Do we have to believe um, that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but at, but at the end, uh, you, you need to understand what the consumer is looking for, and so I think on those those type of consumers, I think it's pretty much spread. Out, I would say half and half. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, depend on the market. Uh, if you look, for example, in Brazil, we have maybe 80, 85% of uh, the people who use, the consumers who use Bitcoin is for investment purposes, uh, especially because of the, of the exchange rate. And it's very beneficial for them. Uh, but if you come to Europe or if you go, for example, to Georgia, where we have ATMs and people can actually use their cryptos to uh, do transactions, uh, That is, uh, that's a completely different story. And when we talk about energy, we publish also on our Twitter account uh, that the energy that Bitcoin uses in a year is less than the conventional banking system. So people will always talk about how Bitcoin and mining Bitcoin is so uh, intense and it needs so much energy because that's something that uh, politicians in the United States are talking about. But actually, the amount that it's used for the transactions today is less than the international monetary system. So uh, it's not that much. That is, that is a good fact to know. But uh, uh, Fabio brought up uh, Bitcoin ATMs in, in Georgia. Uh, Luca, ever used one before? Uh, I have. Uh, well, I've, I've tried it once uh, just to see how it operates. It's it's a pretty funny experience. Uh, you know, when you realize what's going on behind, catching out your. Why why do those ex why why are there a lot uh, in Georgia? And is it is it because people need to do exchanges uh, with Europe and it's more difficult to do with regular banking? What's the reason? Well, it's a convenience matter. I mean, Georgia has been pretty big on crypto over the past couple of years. Uh, I mean, something that's not too well known is where you were at some point on the third spot internationally in terms of mining. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, uh, a lot ha a lot of it has to do with the reasonably low uh, electricity prices, uh, as well as um, uh, some more favorable tax conditions around that. And well, it's been mined on an industrial scale, but a lot of enthusiasts appeared in the, especially in the countryside. Surprisingly, where mining took off pretty big time. Uh, so you have a lot of people walking around with uh, crypto in their wallets with no way to cash in them. And we we're talking about like four or five years ago even. Uh, that's where, where that's when those ATM machines really start popping up. And it was just a matter of convenience. I mean, I see them being used to, to this day. You see them in pretty much every mall. 
Uh, so settling around. Yeah, I, I even saw when we went to Belize, I saw in, in bars you can even uh, you can pay with Ripple for your for your beer. Is this something that friends of you use? Is this something you see regularly that people actually pay? Maybe not on an everyday basis. I mean, but I do but know enthusiasm. Is there, enthusiasts are definitely there, and well, you definitely can find one or two enthusiasts a night who will uh, insist on <laughs> using crypto <laughs> as their primary uh, method of payment. Right. So let's uh, get to the third and last topic. Uh, I, I always like to do a bit of an update on sort of a new nanny state uh, rules. I, on the podcast we talked before about uh, new potential EU regulations on on alcohol. Um, this is something that uh, uh, is within the EU beating cancer plan where the European Union is discussing everything from labels, warning labels on wine to uh, regulations on uh, to happy hours and so on. Uh, some EU countries have already implemented uh, uh, rules uh, such as those. Uh, we've seen that during the COVID pandemic, there were also restrictions on uh, uh, when you can sell tobacco and alcohol and so on. Um, so if you have any updates from where you live or any interesting uh, nanny state uh, updates uh, in your country or, or, or in general, uh, uh, I'd, be, I'd be interested to hear about that. Anyone off the top of their head? Otherwise, we can, uh, we can do some uh, general uh, statements on it. In Fairfax, Virginia, they just recently um, passed the county regulation on plastic bags. So uh, supermarkets will charge you for 50 cents a pop for plastic bags, which I find some supermarkets will rather pay for that instead of asking the consumers to pay. But some bigger chains like Walmart, they, they just put it on top of the, the, the grocery price, and that's actually another burden on the consumer. Absolutely, and it's. Uh, I think. I think for those uh, listeners who are interested on this topic, uh, uh, David uh, Clement at the CCC, he has done some interesting uh, research and work on on plastic bags and uh, why the choice between paper and plastic isn't as. Uh, um, clear cut as some people might think and the government doesn't necessarily know better how to how to do these things for those of you who've been using the reusable bags you need to reuse them quite often for you to actually have an environmentally positive uh, impact fabio any any news in italy any new rules on uh, where you can smoke and drink you you give me the listeners can't see that but uh, fabio's giving me the look Ooh, okay not uh, not entirely sure there but i i know that each time when i go to italy always staggered by the by the differences uh, between the beer and the wine prices so you have local products that are that are that are that are reasonably uh, priced but then uh, as soon as it comes to comes to imports it's actually quite a quite a difference it's always kind of this protectionism for local products and beverages uh, outside of the uh, the nanny state argument but i see, but i see that the nanny state argument is often used to defend sort of the national products yeah, that, that is for sure. I think in Italy, uh, you have uh, regionalism. So like different regions, they compete with each other and they are very protective against other uh, products that might compete with their local products. So if you go to the supermarket, I think I'll have maybe one or two uh, bottles of uh, red wine from France available to buy mm. and everything else is Italian wine. So it's it's very weird because when I go, for example, for to Lisbon, where my in-laws live, um, we have everything in Lisbon. You can in Portugal you can buy like Spanish wines, you can buy French 
French, Italian, everything, even Brazilian food, you, you are able to find in normal supermarkets in, in Portugal. But when you go to Italy, it's only pasta and local food, and it's very hard to find anything that is outside Italy. There are some shops that so sell those kind of things, but I think they are very protective. And uh, it's not necessarily a law, but I think um, it's within, within the culture to uh, keep their, their products, the, the freshness and everything local, uh, in the sense that they don't have competition from other regions, which completely uh, go against the, the, the purpose of having a, a common market in Europe, because the, the whole point is having products going around, mm -hmm. and you can, of course, have the best from each region. Uh, but it doesn't seem to work that way. Mm. I, I want. I do want to focus on the on, on the uh, European Beating Cancer Plan because there's this entire assumption that the government needs to uh, uh, regulate and change people's behavior in order to prevent uh, non-communicable diseases, of which cancer is one. Um, uh, Luca, your view: uh, people are aware that certain products have uh, uh, potential consequences, but is it really the government's uh, uh, role to intervene? Uh, well, I suppose it uh, depends on society we're talking about at the, at the, at the time. Uh, um, I would say it should be on the discretion of the population themselves to be kept aware about the potential dangers, of course, but uh, to take over the entire nanny state role for the, uh, on the side of the government will just simply lead to a lot more problems coming up in the future. I can, imagine, I can imagine if in Georgia uh, the, the government outlawed kashapuri because it says it's bad for you, because actually you're like, you know, melted cheese and dough and all that, it probably, would probably have a bit of a backlash. I know that when Denmark instituted a, a, a tax on saturated fat of, uh, of more than 2.3%, what people did instead is they drove across the border and got their things uh, anyway. Is, is, there, uh, is there some of this, this, uh, this going on? Because what we often see is that when, when things get overtaxed or, or banned is that people get it illegally. Is there, is there is there is there a market for that in Georgia as well? Do you see that reaction when alcohol or cigarettes get made too expensive for people? It's happening currently. Uh, I mean, our current uh, our, our current party uh, ruling party, the Georgian Dream, Dream, well, is now undisputedly a nanny state-esque government, which which is trying to implement additional uh, regulations. Let's take cigarettes for example, and there's talks about additional stuff. There's talk about potential sugar tax, which is a bit. Um, well, it was worded pretty poorly by the government. It was, it was referred to as a fat tax at some, at some point. But, well, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't think the effects of it uh, are yet there, besides cigarettes, which are becoming uh, increasingly increasingly pricier, and it's causing uh, uh, backlash as time goes on. And there seems to be a market for, uh, well, it seems to be the black market is about to be formed. As, uh, there's already, well, I know that there are people who are starting to smuggle uh, used to smuggle cigarettes from Ukraine or smuggle uh, petrol from Azerbaijan. Um, but I suppose the biggest impact is uh, on a larger scale. What Georgian Dream is really trying to do right now is to impact the, introduce a nanny state-esque approach uh, in the long term in the shape of infrastructural changes in the capital, um, which are well, pretty bizarre if you think about it, the wording as well. Uh, as the mayor of the city of Tbilisi, uh, well, admittedly said straightforward that the infrastructural changes and the policy changes are aimed to make it as hard for the car owners to drive around the city as possible. Uh, pretty poor wording, if you ask me. And well, that is pretty controversial to this day, and it's causing a backlash. And you can see the results of it as it goes. And well, uh, I suppose the biggest. Um, you're becoming very European there. It did come after the association agreement was signed yeah. with the EU. So I'm, it wears I'm, off, I'm, I'm unfortunately. Yeah. 
Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> uh, but I suppose the biggest kind of controversy, the controversy in a way, is caused by uh, the sudden shift in the policy as such. I mean, we are a post-Soviet country. Mm. We've lived under the extreme nanny state under the Soviet Union, well, extremely oppressive one. Mm. Uh, and the reforms uh, in early and mid-2000s showed the people what a deregulated country can be, and everyone's mm. been enjoying that. And it seems now it's a bit of a 180 in a lot of those policies, and it is causing a lot of people to question the uh, well, the validity of the government interfering into mm -hmm. everyday affairs to this extent. Right. Well, it remains to be seen as it's been in works for, for the couple of years, but uh, certainly the, popul like the populace is shaping its opinion in sense and seems to be not in favor of an anti-state. So, uh, last person I wanted to get to on this assignment, uh, you've, uh, you've uh, lived uh, in different countries on in different continents uh sort of your perspective on sort of the the, the differences in, in the approach to the nanny state uh lifestyle regulations whatever you want to call it what's been sort of your uh your perspective there on the differences on how anything from like gambling to alcohol policy to tobacco to vaping has been treated is that really is it is it a is it a uniform uh philosophy of we know better how to like the government knows better how to run your lives is that is that is it, is it the same everywhere, or are there sometimes even cultural differences as to how the nanny state approaches uh, the issue? It is very, I, I would say it is culturally and historically determined. Like in Hong Kong, where I came from originally, a, a few things like gambling or smoking or drinking, it was so into the, the, the cultural fabrics at the very beginning. So... Um, it kind of grandfathers through ages, but if you go to some other places like in, in Taiwan, I realized um, there are a few things that were, were not originally there, and like gambling, it was not there. You cannot find any casinos there, so you, mm -hmm. you don't have, but you have a government-run lottery. Right. Uh, it is a government monopoly. They, they have a better name for it. And um, so, Whenever you you have something that's broken by entrepreneurs like introducing the society before the government did, you have a higher chance of surviving down the road. And if it was introduced by the government to begin with, you don't have a chance. Right. Yeah. It's also it also adapts to demand. In any way, I wanted to thank everybody who's been uh, joining us uh, for this podcast uh, and, and thank you to the listener for tuning in to this special episode. Thank you to Fred Roder, Fabio Fernandez, Simon Lee and Lucas Agania. I've been your host, Bill Words. Um, see you next week for another episode, a regular episode of Consumer. Yeah, see you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody else. Pressure. Oh,